0: Of Unapologetically Joy. My name is Joy. I'm the host of this podcast, and we have another interesting guest today, and that is Caroline Cooker Ross. And she is an author, a speaker, and an intergenerational trauma expert, and specialized in eating disorder, obesity, and addictions. Um, she has also her own podcast, uh, the Dr. Caroline Cooker Ross podcast. She's the co-founder of the Anti-Racism and Equity Institute. And she's also uh, consults uh, treatment centers to help develop successful eating disorder programs. So, welcome.
1: Thank you. Nice (laughs) to be with you, Julie.
0: Yeah, it's really nice that you want to be on my podcast. And um, I'm always interested uh, about the why behind uh, what someone uh, is doing. And um, I read about that you have a really interesting uh, life story. And um, I was wondering if you can share with us more about your history and how that inspired you to do what you do.
1: Yeah, well, I think it all comes from my family because I have a lot of addictions and eating disorders in my family and also mental health issues. And so, kind of, I spoke about this in my TEDx. Pleasant Grove talk, where I talked about looking at my own family tree and realizing that there was a lot of trauma and that the trauma then was showing up as, you know, depression, suicide, uh, alcohol and drug issues, um, and eating disorders. And so then I started to explore, like, what would it be like to try to interrupt the cycle of intergenerational trauma? And uh, did a TEDx talk and, and so on and so forth. But it's what led me into doing this work initially.
0: Mm-hmm. Really interesting. And where did this um, investigation start? Did you read some books about it? Um, what did you do?
1: Yeah, well, um, I, you know, I first did a family tree. And I've I've been speaking on this topic for a number of years. And so I've done, you know, I've read a bunch of articles, research articles and things like that to get more uh, understanding of how intergenerational trauma goes from the effects go from one generation to another to another. And it's, I think it's just a, it's very important. It's important in my work because I work a lot with, people with mental health and behavioral health issues, uh, addictions, and eating disorders, and trauma. And so it, it really has informed you know, my work and enabled me to take a deeper uh, look at my patients and help them on a deeper level.
0: Mm-hmm. Really interesting. And this is what I actually don't really see in the medical industry is that they don't go really deep and they're not really go to the core of the problem Um, they always go for the quick fix you know they take a pill and that's it um why do you think it's that
1: well you can also say that that's what patients want because as a physician you know people come in and you say well let's talk about you know your trauma well you know, most people don't really want to do that, and they don't have the, the bandwidth. They're, you know, they're afraid of going, going into a deeper level, and so they do want that quick fix to mm-hmm. see, you know, like, how can I feel better faster?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true, yeah, yeah. And, um, for example, if you start with, uh, with a patient, um, where do you start? How do you, how does
1: this um, treatment look like? Yeah, I think for me, I'm really advocating for universal screening for trauma. And I think there are, now in the United States anyway, there are some uh, medical groups, like pediatric groups, that are screening for adverse childhood experiences. And I think if you do the screening, then You know, you have the option to refer them for trauma treatment or to, you know, do the trauma work yourself if you're, you know, if you're trained to do that. Um, But I think without knowing what people have gone through, it's really hard to be able to affect any change. And the same goes for uh, racialized trauma. You know, many people don't have an understanding of the impact of historical trauma or race-based traumatic stress and yet they're seeing patients and they're seeing the effects of trauma like i said Um, but the adverse childhood experiences study has shown that trauma not only increases the risk for behavioral problems like substance use disorder or eating disorder but it also increases the risk for uh things, medical illness like diabetes, Mm -hmm. heart disease, stroke, cancer. So Mm -hmm. trauma has an impact on a person's risk for developing cancer or heart disease. So that's like, heart disease is the number one killer in every country of both Mm -hmm. men and women. And yet we're not looking at one of the contributing factors to heart disease, which is, you know, childhood uh, or young adult trauma.
0: Mm-hmm. And how does it stay in a family? Is it still like in the DNA? How does it work?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the main way that it, it, we think that it's passed along is through what we call epigenetics. You can't really change DNA very rapidly, but you can turn on or turn off a gene, say for, you know, for heart disease, by certain factors in your lifestyle. And so it's, you know, it's something that, say, it started, we started looking at this and doing research on this in offspring of Holocaust survivors Mm -hmm. where they were seeing certain traits, whether it be an increase in depression, anxiety, and also post-traumatic stress disorder in the offspring of Holocaust survivors. So it's, it's not surprising that the survivors themselves would have ptsd but it is surprising that their children would have a higher risk for ptsd without having any known trauma and so that's where i think some of these studies began and now we're starting to see some biochemical changes having to do with uh, the genes that deal with with stress and trauma and that kind of thing so i think You know, looking at all of that, you start to really get a picture that um, we need to pay more attention to these histories of trauma.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. I also feel like when I look at wars, I feel, I don't know, I can just cry right away. So maybe it has something to do with me too. But also um, one of my family members also got... um, yeah, they, um, they pick up the, all the Jewish people, you know, they took them in their their house and, you know, they are really, um, they were like freedom fighters, you know. But, uh-huh. but I still feel like maybe there's something in my genes or something when I see wars mm-hmm. or something related to wars, I just feel so sad about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think,
1: I think many people have experienced trauma from wars. You so just think about it in Europe you know, World War I and World War II didn't have as much of an impact in the United States because we weren't under attack except for Pearl Harbor. Um, but certainly in Europe, people were under attack. Their houses were bombed. You know, they had to find new places to live. Their family members were killed. So I think war is certainly a source of trauma. Um, being a refugee is a source can be a source of tra- traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just people in the United States. I think now most westernized countries have uh, looked at the adverse childhood experiences study and applied it to their own country to try mm-hmm. to screen for childhood traumas. And the it's surprising that across many different countries, the rates of childhood trauma are almost the same. You know, from the United States to who did the original study, to mm-hmm. England, to Canada, etc., have about the same amount of of childhood trauma.
0: Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. And and what do you think, for example, um, if your both uh, parents are addicted to alcohol, for example, um, what kind of trauma is there underneath? Um, Or is it like, is there some similarities maybe?
1: Yeah, I mean there's a lot of research on adult children, of people with uh, alcohol use disorder, that shows certain patterns, whether it be uh, fear of conflict, um, not wanting to be uh, in any kind of, uh, to be a people pleaser, Uh, There's a whole long list, they call it the laundry list of uh, the effects of having one or both parents have alcohol use disorder in a family, and it does cause a lot of uh, trauma. Sometimes there can be neglect, Uh, at other times there's um, domestic violence in the family because of drinking, Mm -hmm. and so it's, you know, it's, it's, um, I think it's something that people are used to, and so they don't think about it as much. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the research is there that trauma does occur if one of the parents has any kind of substance use disorder, including the alcohol use disorder. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about,
0: for example, anorexia? Is it, is it also related to uh, wars, for example?
1: Yeah, I don't know that there's any study directly relating anorexia to wars. Mm-hmm. Basically, the studies have shown that trauma um, is increases the risk for all of the eating disorders, and that okay. trauma is prevalent in boys mm-hmm. with eating disorders as well as girls,
0: mm-hmm. men,
1: women, all races, you know, all ages. So trauma is one of the underlying root causes. And the same for substance use disorders. Uh, trauma really is being recognized more and more as the underlying cause of substance use disorders.
0: Mm. And when you were researching about your family, um, where do you think the trauma was came from?
1: from? Well, I mean, there's original trauma from slavery in my family. And then uh, if you go down after that, we had like uh, grandparents, some of whom had uh, alcohol problems, even Mm -hmm. though they were high functioning, they still uh, had alcohol issues. And then there's, you know, just ongoing uh, racial trauma in our family Mm -hmm. that has to do, it that occurs in most families of color. Yeah. Uh, you know, African-American, Latinx, you et cetera, Asian. So that kind of trauma is ongoing on a daily basis in the form of uh, Mm -hmm. microaggressions and uh, bias in the workplace, um, Mm -hmm. you know, racism in the workplace, white supremacy. It's just Mm -hmm. an ongoing issue. Mm -hmm. And it, it, you know, it's an ongoing issue for any country that was colonized by England. Mm France and Portugal were the big ones to start with, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. so colonization is what started that whole, you know, thing, the white supremacy Mm. situation. Mm.
0: And do you think it's ever going to change?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ever is a long, long time. I don't Mm. don't know if I'll see change in my lifetime, I can tell you that. Mm. It's a hard one because it's, you know, Mm. it's so deeply embedded in society. Mm -hmm. people don't even think about it people who Mm -hmm. are people of color deal with it every day but if you're not a person of color Mm -hmm. you may not even recognize that it's happening around you and most people who are not being affected by something don't have much you know intention or desire to look for it you know they're not they want to stay in their own little bubble in their own little comfort zone rather than oh, well, I see my best friend as being you know, the victim of bullying because of his color or the victim of, you know, people are telling racist jokes around him or he's not getting the same opportunities that I am. But, you know, I, I'm not sure if people want to do anything about that and that's where the problem lies. Unless, unless white folks join the fight against racism, it's pretty hard to make change, Um, so that, I think that is the ongoing issue that we're facing. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and how do you think there is going to be a solution, like, what is the solution for you? Like, because you said fight, for example, how can we go um, from fighting against each other and to to love each other, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. understand each other better.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's the you know sixty million dollar question that everyone's grappling with, mm-hmm. and you know in in the group that I work with, the Institute for Anti Racism and Equity, we go into organizations, we go into mental health treatment facilities, and we do trainings to try to raise awareness about the issues related to uh, racism, um, mm-hmm. and the more you know, the more that we can raise awareness, the better it will be. But besides awareness, there just needs to be action taken. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's a much longer process because we have to elect people who are not preaching, you know, white supremacist values as Mm -hmm. the previous president of the United States did. And Mm -hmm. we have to, you know, have people who are willing to pass laws against you know, voter suppression or, um, you know, be, pass laws to help those who, who are struggling with poverty as a result of racism. So it's, it's, you know, there is no one magic bullet solution. But I think, you know, everybody has to do their own work mm-hmm. to see what they can do. It's not just something where, you know, like I said, only black people need to be doing this. It's mm-hmm. uh, something that every person who lives in a country where there is racism, which is pretty much every country on the planet, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> especially those that are predominantly white, then you know every person needs to do their own work. Whether it be reading books, you know, talking to their neighbors who are people of color, educating themselves by what I mean. There's so many movies. There's so many documentaries mm-hmm. now. That are out and available if people are willing to take the time and energy to watch them.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, good one. Yeah, and um, yeah, also there. I'm from Holland, so there's a lot of history there too. You know?
1: Yes, there is, right?
0: It's, it's so so crazy what happened, you know? And yeah, it's the history is so long, you know. So. Mm-hmm. That is uh, maybe for another time, but it's, uh, it's uh, crazy what happens, you know. And, uh, and yeah, and also uh, you talked about your institutes. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do for these institutes? Uh, do you go to schools, for example? Or?
1: No, we, we um, go into organizations that hire us to come in and do trainings for their leadership and for their staff to help raise awareness about racism mm-hmm. and just help people start the journey to learning more about what racism is and how it affects everybody. It doesn't just affect you know, people of color, it affects everyone. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: amazing. And, um, and I think you're a really good way for breaking your trauma. And mm-hmm. what advice can you give to people that are dealing with trauma, and how can you break this this pattern?
1: Yeah, I think the advice that I would give is is usually to get help with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's often very, especially if the trauma is very severe or happened when they were very young. Um, you know, if you can find a trauma-trained therapist who uses trauma therapies like EMDR and brain spotting and other therapies that will enable them to get more progress. I mean, there are a lot of books about healing from trauma, so that is also a place to start, but I think it's better to do trauma work in, in conjunction with someone who's an expert at, and can guide you through the process because there will be ups and downs. Um, you know, a lot of people who've gone through trauma are afraid to go, kind of go back over that because they think they'll feel the same degree of pain that they felt when they were a child. But as an adult, we have a lot more reserves, resilience, skills than we did as children, hopefully. And so, you know, when you do trauma work, um, as I do in my anchor program where we work with people with binge eating, um, food addiction, and emotional eating. We really emphasize that it's not going to be your little child person who's going to have to deal with the trauma. It's you, as an adult, dealing with the trauma. And that makes it a little less frightening and overwhelming. Mm
0: -hmm. And do you also feel like um, before you can heal something, you first have to feel it? You know, I always say like feeling is healing that's what i was
1: saying. Yeah, i i know, but i think that's what scares a lot of people away mm-hmm. from trauma healing is because they're afraid to feel those feelings again. So, i'm i would say that there are feelings involved in healing mm-hmm. from trauma, but there's also, you know, intellectual understanding, there's knowledge that you have to have and mm-hmm. there's, you know, support that you need. So, you can't I don't think it works to just sit in your room and cry about the past, Um, but I do think it works, you know, to allow yourself when feelings do come to the surface, Mm -hmm. to allow yourself to feel those feelings rather than blocking them with alcohol or food or Mm -hmm. some other methodology. Mm. Yeah,
0: interesting. And do you have maybe also an example from a patient that you work with?
1: Example about trauma. Yeah, trauma,
0: but, yeah, about trauma and the emotions. So.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I can't really talk about patients because mm-hmm. that's against that's against the rules. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, I can just say that I walked with a lot of patients through that journey, mm-hmm. and whether it be, I mean, for some of my patients with eating disorders. The trauma is that they were neglected or they they were shamed around their body size or Mm. shamed around food. So Mm. I just wrote a recent blog um, for Psychology Today on food shaming because that's pretty common in families, especially if they have a, a family member who has struggled with eating And body image issues themselves. They may think they're doing their child a big favor to say, you know, you should need another donut because, you know, then you're going to get too big. But actually, it's the opposite. It just makes a child feel like something's wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And when you feel like something's wrong with you, you don't necessarily want to do the things that would help you feel better, just Mm -hmm. feel bad about yourself. Yeah. And so, food shaming, body shaming, all of weight stigma, all of that is a particular type of trauma that many of the patients who work with me in the anchor program have experienced.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with self love, right?
1: Well, self love is very far down the line. Mm. Uh, it takes a lot of healing for people who've spent their lives hating their bodies Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: they can't be the size they want to be, Mm -hmm. so self-love is something that they may experience with time, but Mm -hmm. in the beginning we try to focus on just not hating your body, like Mm -hmm. not hating yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, having some compassion or some neutral feelings Mm -hmm. about yourself and your body. And then, over time, people do eventually come to love themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that takes quite a lot of time, because they've been, you know, since childhood, thinking of themselves as, like, something's wrong with me, or
0: Mm -hmm. I'm not
1: lovable, or I'm not worthy. And with that kind of belief system, it makes it difficult for them to love themselves or even like themselves.
0: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, maybe it's too far away to love yourself. It's yeah,
1: that's, uh, I think that's a big aspirational goal. Yeah. It's not necessarily <laughs> something you can do overnight.
0: No, that's true, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what do you do to feel connected with yourself? Because you've mm-hmm. a lot of trauma. Yeah. I can imagine there's a lot of also negative energy all the time. You know? And uh, also, of course, um, Good energy when really you help people, but I can understand it must be tough sometimes. You
1: know. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. I mean, it can be difficult, but you know, it's very rewarding work as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, I connect with myself whether it be through meditation, exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I take time off to read and um, you know just to re- regroup basically. Mm-hmm. So. I think earlier in my career it was much harder for me to do that and I often, mm-hmm. you know, felt kind of overwhelmed with other mm-hmm. people's trauma. Yeah. Um, but over time you learn how to be engaged but not mm-hmm. be taken over by mm-hmm. that. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good, that's good. And what kind of meditation do you do? Guided meditation or...
1: Oh, I've things. done a bunch of things you know i i and I teach that to my patients actually, mm-hmm. so everything from breath work to guided meditations like guided imagery to relaxation, yeah you know, just all of the above. I was trained in transcendental meditation in med- medical school, not by the medical school, but it was my way of surviving med school <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. oh, yeah. yeah, so Must that's that's. It.
1: A, that's another one that I can go back to is transcendental meditation.
0: Mm. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. And um, do you also have like a morning routine or evening routine you do?
1: Yeah, one thing I do in the morning is I sit and have a cup of tea. Oh. I, lo- I love chai tea. Mm-hmm.
0: And oh, it's me a- too. I love yeah. tea. Yeah, <laughs> it's you
1: my favorite. It. And so it is a morning ritual to mm-hmm. just sit and you know, mm-hmm. kind of center myself with a cup of chai tea.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing. And what I always feel like, for example, with uh, intermittent fasting, you know, it's also really good. Um, I don't eat
1: yeah, I, I'll have it. to interrupt you there because I don't promote any kind of diets.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Because diets are what often lead people to eating disorders
0: oh of course yeah so
1: yeah so for me dieting i'm kind of anti-diet i'm not pro-diet i don't i mean if people want to try those things that's fine but i think particularly for teenagers Mm. and vulnerable individuals so individuals who have a history of trauma Mm. going on diets can be the first step to um developing an eating disorder Mm. and i've had i've have that history so many, many times. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you know, most of the long-term research on diets have shown that they really don't work. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a 15-year study done by the National Institutes of Health here in the United States. I can't remember how many millions of dollars it cost. But most diets are equivalent in that they result in a small amount of weight loss. When you look at them, say, five years or 10 years from now, like, people mm-hmm. may lose weight in the first year or mm-hmm. even two years, but after that, they usually can't sustain uh, a restrictive program. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's another reason why I, I mm-hmm. don't promote diets, just because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's kind of we, we keep saying the same thing over and mm-hmm. over, and obviously we're getting the same result because yeah. the rate of people who are continuing to diet in the hopes of, you know, losing weight or getting thin, mm-hmm. which the doctors are saying is, is what you need to do to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not gone down, and yet they're, they're all trying those diets, good yeah. conscience, and they're spending lots of money on them. Um, but it's not working, so we need mm-hmm. to try something different.
0: Well, I it's think it's this- true, yeah, yeah, it's true, because you do it for one year, and then you fall back in the same patterns. So yeah.
1: yeah, or you fall into an eating disorder, and that can yeah. last your lifetime.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. There well, you go. actually, my mom was uh, suffering from anorexia, mm-hmm. so, and um, and also my dad was like a fitness freak, you know, like like really extreme, you know. So, but luckily i love my body so i'm really lucky that i don't have this problem so i'm really happy about it yeah you also said something about the anchor program Mm
1: -hmm.
0: can you explain a little bit more about the program and what how does it look like
1: yeah the anchor program is an online program for people with binge eating Mm. food addiction and emotional eating so it has an online curriculum and we also meet on Zoom. The first part of the program to, we get to the root cause of why people have their food and body image issues, and that's a twelve week intensive, and then they go into a six month program that where they enables them to kind of learn new skills for how to deal with life, how to cope with stress, without using food. Mm. yeah.
0: It's nice, and and then after, like, do you also do other
1: things in program? Yeah, after after the program, they can join the alumni group, and so the alumni group doesn't have an online curriculum, but we do meet on Zoom once a month. So the first part, first and second part of the program does have an online curriculum, Um, and then the alumni group is just a meeting. So it's just kind of more of a support group where people can continue to get the support they need to stay in recovery because it's it's so difficult, you know, I mean, you're bombarded day, day in and day out with mm-hmm. messages about eat this, don't eat that, you know, you, you don't look good unless you're this size, etc., mm-hmm. uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, it's just very, very difficult for people to stay on a recovery program with Their family members, you know, co work like over Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. I'm sure most people have sat at dinner tables where someone has said, Oh, wow, I'm on a diet, or Oh, wow, are you going to eat all of that? You know, those are the kinds of things that really for people with eating disorders can be very damaging. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with, you know, the, the uh, Christmas and, and Hanukkah and all of the other holidays that have a, a big concentration with food.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hate that when people say that. W- would you eat that? Like, I- I'm on diet, yeah. kind of stuff, you know, like just keep it to yourself you know it's
1: that's right keep it
0: to yourself but it's sometimes so triggering you know and yeah so the stories what i heard from my mom you know it's it sometimes can be just one sentence and then you're fall back into that trap you know yeah
1: exactly mm
0: -hmm. yeah it's crazy and um and also so the after you also do the consulting so I think it's never going to change, right, because you feel, sometimes you feel triggered again.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people get to the point where they're more comfortable in dealing with the triggers. Mm -hmm. I don't think the triggers are ever going to go away. Mm -hmm. But if you can have, you know, have more skill at just responding to the triggers, Mm -hmm. you, you know, for many people, they don't recognize the trigger until they are already in a relapse cycle mm-hmm. and that's fine as long as you you know come back out of it if, if, if you can just recognize it soon enough that you can come back out of the relapse cycle and by relapse I mean just what, whether it be binging or obsessing about food or obsessing about your body and how it looks uh, all of those things are you know what, what we would describe as relapse But it's really uh, important for you to have those skills so you can kind of get out of that vicious cycle Mm -hmm. where you feel bad about yourself so you eat or you binge i mean and then you feel bad about binging so you just keep going around and around that vicious circle Mm -hmm. over and over
0: Mm -hmm. but but i also feel like the body positivity movement is really going on right now yeah
1: yeah, I think it's great. But I, again, just like self-love, I think body positivity may not be something everyone can identify with. Mm-hmm. So we should start by saying, let's talk about body neutrality, where you just don't hate yourself. You know, mm-hmm. if you can just look at your belly and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm working on myself, and you know, I don't need to really hate on myself. I can just say something neutral, like You know, my belly is the place that digests my food for the day or whatever you want to say. I'm just making it up. But so that you don't have to, you know, constantly be sending yourself these negative Mm self-hating messages. So Mm -hmm. if people can get to the point where they feel they're ready to do body positivity work, that's great. Mm -hmm. But if not, you can start by just doing, you know, something less um, than that something like body neutrality
0: mm. yeah, and what I also read about body positivity, it has this origin also from Africa, right? It's also from um, that's what I read about posi- body positivity,
1: oh, I didn't know if the but- you're saying the body positivity movement yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah, i d- I don't know uh, about the origins of the body positivity mm. movement, but I know that. Uh, Women in Africa have uh, definitely, many of them have a markedly different Mm -hmm. viewpoint about their bodies than Mm -hmm. we do in Western culture, and much more, you know, positive and Mm -hmm. self-affirming. They feel, many of them may feel, uh, you know, they look at us and think, what's going on over there? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, you only get one body, so it's important to take care of it and, that's what we want to be working towards, mm. taking care of yourself and your body and not you know per- perpetuating those self hating messages.
0: perfect, yeah, I feel the same, and also, I go to the gym every day also because I want to feel good, you know yeah, and that's what my intention is every day, because after my workout, I feel so good, mm. and I'm not really focused on being skinny, you know? yeah. I think that's Yeah, well, a
1: lot of people have exercise trauma, too. You know, I've had mm-hmm. patients who were told when they were little kids, like, you're too fat to play soccer. And mm-hmm. many of them were, you know, felt themselves to be very athletic and loved sports. But if you are told by an authority figure that you can't play soccer because of your size, mm-hmm. that can scar you for life. And I've seen that. Mm-hmm. So it's great if you have a good relationship with exercise and you can, you know, go ahead and go to the gym and work out and feel good. But for many people who've grown up struggling with their weight, um, exercise trauma is, is something that they also have to heal mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm.
0: And how can you turn that around? Uh, yeah, can you make that positive?
1: Well, it's it's just like every other trauma. You have to work mm-hmm. on healing the trauma,
0: mm-hmm.
1: identifying the core beliefs that are associated with the trauma, mm-hmm. and then making a choice to start um, changing how you feel about exercise mm-hmm. or food or whatever it is. So you have to, you know, really kind of create new beliefs for yourself that and be able to observe how your body responds like you're saying mm-hmm. you go to the gym and it makes you feel good well mm-hmm. that's something that people who don't have exercise trauma mm-hmm. usually do say mm-hmm. but if you have exercise trauma unless you're on a diet most people who have that trauma use exercise only when they're on a diet or trying to lose weight mm-hmm. and so We want to really reestablish exercise as a human right, just like eating as a human right, and it's something that is part of a a healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of doctors talk about, you know, losing weight so that people can be healthy, but the best way to be healthy is to take actions Mm -hmm. that are healthy, and that would be being, you know, physically active, whether it's walking in the park or doing yoga or whatever you want to do and mm. then feeding your body in a way that makes your body feel good whatever that is for you mm. and you know relaxing stress management so those are the things that make us healthy not losing weight
0: mm. yeah amazing yeah yeah i think this is uh, the perfect end for our podcast and um mm. before we wrap it up Uh, I would like uh, to say to everyone, go follow uh, Dr. Caroline Ross on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, of course. Um, I will put also her website in the description. So if you'd like to see more information and go listen to her podcast, of course, I put it also in the description. Uh, But before we leave, uh, do you have some nice knowledge or words to share with our audience?
1: well (laughs) the only thing i can share is that if you have a history of childhood trauma or even adult trauma i really encourage you to seek expert help with that to heal because trauma can hijack your potential in life and you may find that you keep sabotaging yourself because you don't feel good about yourself which all comes back to your trauma so I just encourage people to be aware of the impact of trauma in your life. And if you're finding that to be the case, to seek expert help.
0: Mm. Amazing ending. Thank you so much for being on my podcast.
1: Thank you, Joy, for having me on the
0: podcast. And and thank you, everyone, for listening. And I will see you next time. Bye-bye.